Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory, Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life loses it. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would create in each of us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. You would restore to us the joy of your salvation and do so through your word, even now. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's the first Sunday in Lent, and Lent is a time for taking off, for, for letting go of some things that have taken hold of you. It is a time to fast. From something in order that you might fully or more fully feast upon the ultimate and true thing, which is God himself. And so if you haven't chosen something to take off and you haven't also chosen something to put on a new spiritual discipline or practice or a new attentiveness to God's word, my encouragement to you is to do so, to start even tomorrow. It is not too late. And whatever you choose, don't make it silly or easy or intangible in some way. Last year, I asked one of my boys what they were giving up for Lent, and he looked at me and said, answering questions. So nothing like that, which you need to make it somewhat serious or tangible and even somewhat burdensome. Alyssa and I lived in Durango, Colorado for our first year of marriage, and we lived downtown. I worked right across the street from our apartment. She worked Caddy Corner. The grocery store was a couple of blocks away. And about a week after our honeymoon, Alyssa went to the grocery store to write a check Children, a check is like a credit card, but you write on it, and it gets many ways. So she wrote a check to get some cash, and she signed it to Alyssa Frickenschmidt, and the cashier looked at her and said, whoa, Frickenschmidt, bet you can't wait to get married and get rid of that one. <laughs> and she flashed her ring and said, I just got it, and she's had it for almost 25 years now. It's a burden that she's been carrying, a lifelong burden. And Lent doesn't last a lifetime, but make no mistake, it is a burden. It is a voluntary burden that we, we put on in order to more fully feel the weight of the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of our own sin, but also that we might feel the glory of the weight of what Jesus has borne for us, which is the weight of all sin and all death and all evil. And, and we put this little burden on for a little while so that we might more fully grasp the ultimate burden that he has borne for us. And as a church, we're going to do that. We're going to take on the burden of the Old Testament book of Judges. And you felt that burden this morning. That was a, a very long reading, so missing my apologies. But the, the book of Judges is arguably the, the darkest, most appalling, 
most shocking and even most confusing book in all the Bible. It ends with the sexual assault of a concubine whose master then cuts up her body into various pieces and sends it throughout the entire country of Israel to demonstrate to them how wicked they as a people and as a culture had become. The final phrase in the last verse of the entire book is, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we have to ask ourselves, how far away are we from that, from from all of us doing what is right in our own eyes, individually, culturally? We also have to ask, what is the point? What is the point of having a book like this in the Bible? What is the message of this book? And so three points this morning to answer that. Number one, a caveat. Number two, a pattern. And then thirdly, a message. First of all, a caveat with which to begin. Let me situate this book for you in the chronology of the Old Testament, because I recognize that not all of you are familiar with it or really know where it falls. Joshua has just died. And Joshua was the leader of the second generation of Israel after the Exodus. So after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God freed Israel, freed his people through Moses, parting of the Red Sea, and they wandered in the desert, the wilderness, for 40 years. And they did so because in disbelief and unfaithfulness, they refused to enter into the promised land of Canaan and to conquer it and to take it. And after that first faithless generation of Israel died and Moses with them, God raised up Joshua and the second generation did that. They conquered the land and they took it for the most part, not entirely because there were still some foreign nations left there in the land that they were supposed to expel. And that's where Judges picks up. Uh, They're meant to expel the rest of the foreign people from Canaan because God has told them to do so, but they don't for various reasons. Some people, they enslave for economic reasons financial profit. They would rather profit financially than do what the Lord has told them to do. And some they just ignore. Others they intermarry with, which in the Old Testament is synonymous with them rejecting the Lord and worshiping other gods. You marry women from from foreign nations, you will worship other gods. And that is the basic situation at the beginning of the book of Judges, which raises all sorts of issues for us. One of which is how could God tell Israel to do essentially what Vladimir Putin is attempting to do in Ukraine? How could he tell his people to do that? To use violence and force to take another people's land and country. How is that morally justifiable? How is that consistent with the character of God that we see elsewhere in the scriptures, particularly Jesus? When the Sermon of the Mount says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, not kill them and take their property. It's confusing, scandalous even, particularly to our modern Western ears with our democratic sensibilities after hundreds and hundreds of years with the idea of unalienable human rights seeping into our conscious. How is that justifiable? And also it's confusing not to mention the religious and moral pluralism which we live with now in our culture, which insists that there is no clear right or wrong or no clear true and false when it comes to religion or to God or even morality. What we hear today is that no one group's beliefs about God or morality is objectively right and another's objectively wrong. It's all subjectively determined. It's based upon everyone's experience. Truth is subjectively and personally determined. So everyone's right and no one's wrong. And as long as whatever you do doesn't harm somebody else, our society will say, you're right, you're good, you're true, whatever it is that you're doing. And that is pluralism, and it's the air we breathe. And if we bring that framework to this book, we will never understand it. Because in Deuteronomy, just two books prior to the book of Judges, in chapter 9 and chapter 18, God tells Israel very emphatically that it's not because of Israel's goodness that he is giving them the land of Canaan. 
but rather it is because of the Canaanites' wickedness. And he's going to use Israel to remove them from the land. And by doing so, to cleanse the land. Because make no mistake, the Canaanites' culture was utterly and completely failed and broken on every level. Economically, sexually, legally, religiously, completely broken. The gang rape at the end of the book, after which the the, the concubine is, is cut up and sent in pieces all throughout the nation of Israel. Men from Israel did that crime. They did it. But they only did it after generation, after generation, after generation of not ref- expelling the Canaanites from the land and instead becoming more and more and more like them. And so everything that we see in this book that we're so utterly offended by, God is offended too. And he is seeking to judge and to act in righteousness to not only punish those who have done it, but to set the world and the, and the land right. He's, he's seeking to use Israel as an act of justice. That is not what's happening in Ukraine and many other parts of the world. Some of you also may be thinking, okay, but why does God have Israel expel them through violence? Which is a good question. And one I don't have time to answer in detail, but let me just say this, that we modern Westerners, who gorge ourselves vicariously and avidly through, on violence, through what we watch, whether on TV and in our movies or the video games that we play or the sports that we love and watch. You know, football and MMA are the two highest rated sports on television. So we who gorge ourselves on violence through what we watch, we have forfeited any right to throw stones at the biblical conquest. Let's just be honest and let's not be hypocritical. Because in many ways, we are as violent as their culture. We're just more refined and controlled in how we express it. And so those are a couple of caveats. But now, we need to recognize a pattern that is here. So a pattern to observe. There is a pattern. It's particularly seen in the first paragraph there. And for that long reading on the book of Judges, we see it clearly in the Judge Othniel. There are six major judges, and we're going to look at all of these judges throughout this series. And the pattern that we see here in this short Othniel section, it's repeated with each and every subsequent judge. And here's the pattern. It's eightfold. So number one, verse seven, Israel does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And notice there's no religious or moral pluralism here. It is what is evil according to God in his eyes. And what is mentioned here specifically is that Israel forgot the Lord their God. And it's very intentional. In fact, that's the only time that that is mentioned throughout the book because forgetting initiates any and all spiritual decline. It initiates any and all sin and brokenness that results. And, and please know that when we hear the word forgetting, we think cognitively. We think mentally forgetting. That is not what's being spoken of here. It's not as though the people of Israel mentally forgot everything that the Lord did in the plagues and in in the parting of the Red Sea and the Exodus that they forgot how he rained bread and, and birds down upon them from heaven or how he brought water out of the rock or that they mentally or cognitively forgot that the walls of Jericho fell. Not at all. What's happening is that they still cognitively knew all of those things that the Lord had done in the past, but what he had done no longer captured and captivated and moved their hearts. That what he had done was no longer as significant or as important to other things that had entered into their life. Other things were more significant and desirable that had come into their purview, and that's what they focused on in their eyes and their attention and their time and their energy That is what it means to forget. It's more of a detachment of the heart than a failure of the mind. 
And so part one, they forget the Lord, but then part two, the Lord gives them, the language here is actually sells them. It's the language of slavery. Sells them into the hands of oppressors. And here in verse eight, it's Kushan Rish Athaim. It's a great name. Kushan Rish Athaim. Kushan is actually his name. Rish Athaim is Hebrew for double wickedness. In other words, he's a really bad guy. And commentators will insist that he's the worst of all the oppressors. He's the most powerful. He's come from the furthest away. He's come from Mesopotamia, which is a long way away. So he's portrayed as as one who's been on a long march, crushing and killing and enslaving everyone in his wake. So the book starts out with the most powerful of oppressors. And the oppressors that come afterward, they're not as strong. They're far weaker, but they last longer because it's part of the decline that we'll see that Israel becomes more and more like the people around them and they become more and more enslaved to weaker and to weaker oppressors. And then that's part three, they serve or have enslaved in the end of verse eight, serve or enslaved to these oppressors. Then part four, Israel cries out to the Lord after years of suffering. And then part five, God raises up a deliverer or a judge. In verse nine here, it's Othniel. And one thing to notice about him is that his account is the shortest by far. You can even tell that from the two readings today. We have two judges here, and one account is very, very short, and one's very long and protracted. Ehud gets so many more words, and that's not a good thing because more is said about him and the rest of the judges because all of the rest of the judges are more complex, morally, and complicated. You'll find, we'll find that they do things that leave us wondering, how can that be right? How could God condone something like that? It's because it wasn't right, and he doesn't condone it. But these judges do these things because they get more and more compromised morally as the book goes along. And so their stories get longer and longer. Othniel is simple, short, straightforward. He's a man of basic faithfulness to God. And he's the only one of whom nothing negative is said. All that is said, all that's needed to be said is what we read of in verse 10, which is part six of this pattern. And it's that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. That's it. He was a faithful, righteous, simple man used of God, nothing more. With the result, part seven, God gives the oppressor into his hand. And please notice here who's in charge in this first section and throughout the book, because it's the Lord who's always giving someone over, giving Israel over to the oppressor, and then finally giving the oppressor over to the judge. God's never not in charge. And so regardless of how it is that you may have forgotten the Lord, or for regardless of what it is that you are facing, whatever oppressor it is that may be upon you, whatever you are doing or whatever it is that's been done to you, even if it holds you, it does not hold the Lord. And you need to cry out to the Lord so that the final step in verse 7 might be known by you, and that is that the nation of Israel, the people of Israel experience rest in their souls from everything all around them. So that's the pattern. Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He gives them over. Secondly, they serve these oppressors. Finally, they cry out. Then he raises up a judge. The spirit of God rests upon the judge. He gives the oppressors over to the judge, and the judge, the Lord through the judge, gives them rest. That is the pattern. And so where are you in the pattern? Because you are somewhere. At what step in this pattern do you find yourself? 
And please know this, and then I'll move on. And that is that the pattern unravels as the book goes along. It's established here with Othniel. We see it very clearly. But then the increasing negative sinful characteristics of all the judges, and as well as the increasing graphic description and details in the book. And then finally, also the protracted and longer, longer periods of time that Israel suffers and serves their oppressors. All of those combine to create a really central aspect of this book, and that is the ever-increasing moral decline of Israel. Spiritually and morally, they continue to decline in every sense of the word. They don't get better at all. Spiritually, morally, relationally, they don't get better, just the opposite. They get worse and worse and worse. Because part of the point of this book is to reveal to us what sin is. And you hear me tell you this all the time, but it needs to be said, especially here. In Judges particularly, but in the Bible as a whole, but especially here in Judges, sin is a power. It is a power that begins to hold us. It is so much more than rule breaking or rebellion against God or running from God or wrongdoing against others. It is all of those things, but only because that's the way in which sin results. Fundamentally, it's a power that we're given over to and that we indulge in and it grabs a hold of us and the Lord honors our decisions and he lifts his protective hand. And as soon as he lifts his protective hand, a double wickedness or a double evil comes in. It's what we see here. And so just as I close this point, listen to me just briefly. You are doing something. You very well may be doing something that you think this is right. This is good in your own eyes. But in reality, it is not so with the Lord. That is, that is true of us all at some point. So what is it for you? Lent is a time to do that type of examination and to cry out to the Lord and to intentionally, tangibly, practically begin to take off what holds. And Lent is also a time for a message. And so point three, last point, a message to heed. Ehud here, he's the second of these six major judges, and he's no Othniel, not even close. And his oppressor is no Cushan of double wickedness. His oppressor is Eglon. He's portrayed as pathetic. I don't know how else to describe him. He's silly and naive and bloated. He's this bored despot that finally gets disemboweled and what's rancid and putrid in him gets ripped out and opened up for everyone to see. And together, this judge and this oppressor, Ehud and Eglon, they're a sign of what is to come and it's not good. That decline in judges that I already mentioned, it is very sharp. We have Othniel and then it just hits. It's very much like the Bible's version of Breaking Bad. Do y'all know this television series? It's regarded by critics typically as the, the highest rated, most critically acclaimed television series ever. It began in 2008, and it changed television, and really storytelling in our generation, at least until now, because every story, everything that you see on television or movies, there's always some sort of character that's very, very flawed, this flawed anti-hero that we find ourselves cheering for, but then we feel a little bit uh, confused that maybe we shouldn't be cheering for this person. And in Breaking Bad, it's Walter White. He's an everyman character, so bland that his name is White. He's unseen by everyone. He's this married high school chemistry teacher in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with one child, a son who has a disability. And Walter himself has been diagnosed with cancer. And he can't pay for his chemotherapy without bankrupting his family. So he does what any of us would do. He starts making and selling crystal meth. Of course, that's what we would do, but he does this. 
And then he becomes this drug lord and a gangster and a murderer. He breaks bad. And Walter White becomes dark, black in his soul. And it's not just him. It's every major character in the story. They all break bad in some way. They all begin bad, but then go really bad. And then they finally end up doing things that are unthinkable and unconscionable and unimaginable at the beginning of the story. And that is the book of Judges. Both Breaking Bad and Judges end raising the question for us, the reader, the audience, asking where's the hope? Where is the redemption in this story? And Judges begins Breaking Bad with Ehud. In verse 12, we read that Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And notice that emphasis upon again. You're going to hear that word time and time again. And it's not simply evil in their eyes, not at all, but it's evil in the sight of the Lord, evil as he saw it. And so again, there are things that you're doing right now that you don't see as wrong. Very well likely. But the Lord sees them as such. Again, Lent is a time to inquire. And like with Kishon, the Lord strengthens Eglon, verse 12, king of Moab. Uh, Moab is closer than Mesopotamia. He's not nearly as strong as Kishon, but he does take the city of the Palms from Israel. And we're not sure where this city was, but it sounds nice. Sounds like a vacation spot, a a place of beauty and rest, which Israel forfeits because that's what sin does. It steals our rest and it makes us slaves. It happens here again. And there's all sorts of ironies and details and, and contrasts in this text that I wish that I had time to point out to you. But at least notice this about Ehud, that it says that he is a left-handed man. It's the one characteristic of him. And he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which in Hebrew means son of my right hand. So Ben is the Hebrew word for son. Yamin is right hand. So a left-handed man who's from the son of my right hand. And the right-handed strong hand was emphasized because the strongest hand is generally the right hand. And so in the Bible, whoever sits on the right hand of the king has the place of honor because that's the strongest ally or asset. But Ehud is left-handed. His right hand is weak. He's seen as weak in the eyes of the world. And so he's this unsuspecting, surprising savior, which demonstrates for us something that we'll see, we see throughout the Bible, but here in particular, it's what the the Lord says to the apostle Paul at the end of 2 Corinthians, that God's power is perfected in what? In weakness. And so the apostle Paul hears that and he says, good, because then when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And that's Ehud here, the one who saves through weakness. And then there's Eglon in verse 17. The one characteristic of him is that he's very fat. And that characteristic is also representative of him because he's gorged himself selfishly on others. The tribute that's mentioned here is probably a tribute of food, a sacrifice of food, some sort of grains or fruit or livestock. He's representative of the world. He's a synecdoche of the world. It's one of my favorite words. Go look it up later. He's a synecdoche. He's a part for the whole of the world. He is gluttony. He is greed, in person, incarnate. He is vanity. He is indulgence. Sitting high, verse 20, above everyone in the cool of his roof chamber. He is power abused. So for you Star Wars nerds, think Jabba the Hutt. For the rest of us, think Harvey Weinstein. This is who he is. Eglon sits. Everyone comes to him. Everyone revolves around him. Just like 
evil King Herod in Matthew 2, whom Frederick Dale Bruner, scholar, commentator, says is a picture of humanity under the power of sin. That is Eglon. And notice how utterly foolish he is. He's so easily duped by Ehud. Verse 19, all Ehud has to say is, I have a secret message for you. And he's there, he's trapped. I have a message for you from God. Kicks everyone out, ready to listen. It's foolish. And what's the message? The message is a sword plunged into his belly by this weak, unsuspecting savior. And the irony is that it's actually a message from God. And this is the message. It's not explicit in this text, but this is the message. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, and the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That is the message. Here, that's Galatians 6, but that's the message here. It's the message throughout the Bible. Psalm 37 says the same thing. It says, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked. And we're meant to laugh here. We're meant to uncomfortably chuckle at what happens here to this oppressor. The Lord laughs at the wicked because he sees his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword, but their sword shall enter their own heart, or in this case, their own belly. And all that they've stolen and all that they've taken and taken and taken and taken into themselves, taken into their own bellies will be ripped out and spilt for everyone to see. In the end, Eglon is a fool because in the end, that's what sin is. It's foolishness. It's spiritual silliness and absurdity, and it makes no sense, just like Eglon. And guess what his name means in Hebrew? Any guesses to what Eglon means? It's this name that's derived from the, the Hebrew word for calf, Egel. But it also sounds like the Hebrew word for round, Egel, together making Eglon the fatted calf. The fatted calf who forced others to sacrifice to him, he gets sacrificed here on the altar of his own self-sitterness and indulgence and abuse. And so is that the message for us? That we'll reap what we sow. That we'll get what we deserve. That the wrong that we've done, all the ways that we've broken bad, it will come back doubly on our heads. Is that the message to be plunged into us today? Should I just pray and end here? Is that it? You know that I can't, but do know that this message of what you sow, you will reap is unequivocally true, and it will be true of you if you continue on this path of downward decline and deterioration that we see in Judges. It will be true of you, but it doesn't have to be true of you. There is another path. And those of you who worship here regularly with us know what that path is. It is the path of grace. And that's really the point of Judges. The point of Judges is the shocking, scandalous grace and love of God for his people, these people. That's the central message, that God comes to them, that God rescues them, and he frees them, and he heals them, and he gives them rest, even though they don't want it. They don't not want it. They don't deserve it in any way, shape, or form. All they do is forget him and run from him but he won't forget them or he won't leave them. He won't forsake them and his promises to them. The abject darkness of judges demonstrates the unimaginable glory of the grace of God to people like them, but like you and like me to us all. And Jesus is all throughout this passage. Do you see Jesus in this passage? He's all throughout the passage. 
because he's the ultimate, simple, straightforward Savior like Othniel. He is the one of whom nothing negative or nothing sinful or wrong can ever be said. And he's Ehud as well, the left-handed man, the one that the world saw as weak and despised, but who proved to be the unexpected and surprising Savior, who used the most unexpected and scandalous and shocking means to free and to rescue his people, that of the cross, upon which he became Eglon for us. Jesus became the fatted calf. He became the one sacrificed to bear the burden and the consequence of all of our sin, everything that we've done, everything that's been done to us. In other words, he reaped what we sowed. That is the message of grace. He reaped what we sowed in order that we might be forgiven of the guilt of our sin, or that we might also be freed of the power of that sin and no longer serve it, and no longer serve ourselves or live for ourselves or live according to what is right in our own eyes, but live new lives according to what is right in his eyes. And so friends, don't you want a new life? Don't you want to be free? Don't you want rest from that which holds you and oppresses you? You can be free. You can be at rest. Jesus is your Othniel. He is your Ehud. He is your Eglon. Because the point is that the amazing grace of God here, it knows no lengths that it won't go to. It knows no depths that he and it won't descend for us, for you. In fact, there's no lengths or no depths that he hasn't already gone to for you. And so do not neglect so great a salvation. As the writer of Hebrews says, pay much closer attention to the scriptures, to the message, to the Lord himself, so that you don't drift away and forget in your heart how much God loves you and the depth of his grace to you, all that he's done for each and every one of us. Lent is a time to pay much closer attention to our souls and to the Lord by taking off what needs to be taken off and casting it away and by putting on what we truly need to put on. So pay close attention to who you are and to all that you have in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, like the Greeks that we read of here in our gospel reading, we would see Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to see Jesus even in the pages of the book of Judges. We pray this in his name. Amen.